Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. Welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is Nasser Pasha. And this is Matt And I'm Matt Staub. <laughs> oh. You're both people right, today. Ahead. Well, I'm Matt Staub, but you can be both of us if you can emulate my voice. And we're both Matt Staub. <laughs> and welcome to the business podcast where we cover business in the news and add our legal twists and also answer some of your business legal questions that you, the listener, can send in to ask at LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into it. And I tease this a little bit, if anyone follows me on Twitter, that we were going to talk about this again, because one of our favorite topics, or not maybe not favorite, but one of our most talked about topics is Uber. And it looks like they're at it again. I think this is the most interesting story we've talked about with them, though. So basically, there's been some investigative work by Lyft. So for those of you who don't know, Uber and Lyft are both essentially taxi cab-like services, more or less. So Uber, what they've been doing over the last couple of years is ordering and canceling rides through Lyft. And a lot of them have been the Uber employees that have been doing it. So they say roughly 5,000 rides from Lyft have been ordered and canceled. And you would think, you know, why would they do this? But it's basically just to eat up Lyft's time so they can't take other rides. Because supposedly, if someone would be deciding between the two, I guess if you tried to get a Lyft and it was really backed up, you would just go to Uber. I only use Uber, so I don't know. But I, I guess I know people that use both. So maybe it's whichever one's most available. But anyways, so they've been doing that, which is obviously an issue. And then two, Uber employees have been requesting short rides via the Lyft drivers and more or less been trying to convince them to switch over to Uber. <laughs> so that's just a couple of things that have been going on. We were thinking about covering this earlier. This has been happening for a while now. There's been a lot of stories about... Uber's very aggressive marketing tactics, both here and abroad. And of course, there's also the legal issues with the taxi cab industry, with whether they need to be licensed or not in particular cities. And that's a separate issue. But one thing I noticed is that this issue with Lyft, it's not unique to that. Even the city of Seattle had issues with how they were marketing. They were gluing up stickers and flyers up on so-called city property and that would otherwise require a permit. So they weren't too happy about that. What I do notice, though, in most cases, especially with this whole canceling of Lyft and so forth and trying to convince Lyft drivers to join up to Uber, they're specifically trying to stay on the legal line of things in the sense that they're getting right to the edge. I mean, there are laws about unfair business practices and even dealing with competitors, but usually those unfair business practices are for protections of the consumer. And right now, it's kind of crappy what they may be doing, but I don't see a lot of legal liability there when it comes to it. What do you think? Yeah, and that's what we're going to get down to is the legal side of it. Unfortunately, you're right. And I will say one thing about Uber, they've really done their research, not just with this, but in general, and they really pushed the legal limits of, of what they can do. And I think they even had a statement come out saying, we recruit hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs to build their own small businesses on the Uber platform where the economic opportunity for drivers is unmatched in the industry. That was their statement following this news. So not even really addressing anything. I mean, they're basically not going to take any blame for doing this. But look at that statement in itself. I mean, them claiming that each of these drivers are entrepreneurs and so forth, it's a little bit of a lie because at the end of the day, a Uber driver can't grow their business because they're limited by their individual. To me, an entrepreneur is somebody that can multiply themselves, that can scale and grow. 
how is a Uber driver supposed to scale or grow their business? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a job. Yeah, I mean, but there was another issue in New York. I'm just building off what you said there because they were talking about, you know, in New York, a bunch of the Uber drivers got a message saying, you know, you can't do trips with your vehicle unless it's with Uber because drivers are trying to basically use Uber or whatever company was available and, and take as many rides as possible. Oh, so like whether it's Lyft or Uber, they would just pick and choose whoever they get a ride from. That's entrepreneurial. But <laughs> if Uber's saying they can't even do that, then yeah. they're, they're basically lying about their own statement. Yeah. I think the only way they'd be entrepreneurial is that if Uber provided a platform to run your own private taxi cab, town car, or private car service, where you can hire other drivers, you can have multiple cars. But I don't think the economics are even there for that, even if, even if they would allow that. But, yeah. uh, you know, Uber obviously is the lead in the industry. And some may say that there's a reason for that. It's because of their aggressive style of competing. And sometimes you can't argue with success. Sometimes you can't. Yeah. So I guess we'll keep an eye on this to see what happens. What do you think should happen, though? What should happen? Do you think they should be prohibited from doing these kind of things? Well, yeah, because it's just there's normal competition, nice, healthy competition. And then there's, you know, things like this, which is... I would say Uber and Lyft are just straight up each their biggest competitors, but you have to play fair. I guess they're kind of playing by the rules, but they're really pushing the limits. I mean, I guess I'm trying to think what, the, what Lyft could do. I, if they have a number that keeps canceling rides, I guess they can you know, ban the numbers. But it, some of these people, like yeah. one employee was tied to 21 different phone numbers, canceled 1,500 rides. Jeez. Like. <laughs> That's the problem. They'll just keep getting new. It's not hard to get a phone number. So they'll just keep getting new and new numbers, more and more numbers. I feel like there's some creative lawyer that can come up with some kind of lawsuit there. There's something that sounds wrong about that, right? But at the end of the day, though, Lyft, I think, is also doing the right thing. I mean, they're doing what they can. They're making it public and so forth. And even though Uber denied it at first, and I don't know if they still are or not, you know, I think they just blame it on certain groups of people in certain cities that are a little more aggressive than others or whatever. But the point is, is that... As a consumer, knowing this information, it could possibly change people's decision-making if they have a choice between Lyft and Uber. Of course, Uber responds saying that the only reason Lyft is complaining is because Lyft is upset for Uber not acquiring them because apparently they were in uh, acquisitions uh, talks as well. Yeah, that's true. I think you're right, though. There's, there's some lawsuit in here. Someone will figure it out and someone will file something or at least attempt to file something or threaten to file something and maybe they'll stop doing it. I, mean, I guess just getting this out there is going to be bad PR for Uber, maybe, but that's the best they can do right now yeah. until they guess. If you're Lyft, it's probably not even worth it to bring a lawsuit, in my opinion. But Yeah, I mean, it depends if you have any backing behind it. Sometimes the only thing you can do, but to kind of be aggressive back. I do need to take a cab later, and I'm probably going to take Uber after we just... We just not left <laughs> after all that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the only one I have on my phone, and it's I don't live in a spot where taxis just normally drive by, so it's pretty much my only option because I don't use Lyft. I don't know. You should just stay outside your house and just hope a taxi drives by. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Or just hail down random people. I mean, what's the difference, you know? Actually, an ambulance just drove by. That's pretty rare. Wow. So maybe there is a taxi today. All right. <laughs> you know what I was thinking is like, if there's a culture where, you know, you can hire private drivers through Uber, if we lived in a world where people are willing to just pull over and be paid for, you could hail any private car and they'd be willing to pick you up and give you a ride, then this whole Uber Lyft thing would be a non-issue. I think we should start that. This isn't Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> the game. <laughs> well, just, I didn't say like take people's cars, them, but... 
that would help you helpful too. It's like a PC version of Grand Theft Auto. All right, let's get to the question of the day. I recently incorporated in California, but when I tried to file for a DBA, my name was taken. Should I be concerned about this? This comes from somebody in Los Angeles. DBA. This is jumping right in here. So the difference between a DBA and the name that you're registered in your state should be differentiated here. First, in California, and most states for that matter, when you register a corporation, the Secretary of State is going to do a check to make sure that the name itself complies with the law and that also, like for example, you can't have the word bank in there or university in there in some states unless you're a bank or a university. And then it'll also check if the name itself is duplicate or very similar to another name. And different states are have different leeways when it comes to how similar that is. And a lot of times they're pretty flexible. But a DBA is a fictitious business name. Basically, you're operating under a different name than what your business name is. And this could be a different name than you're, if you're operating under as an individual or a corporation or LLC and so forth. And when you register that, usually by the county, and there are some states that have DBA state registrations as well, particularly in California, they don't check to see whether or not there's any duplicates. So even if there is a duplicate, they'll register it accordingly. So that's, first of all, understanding that premise. Yeah, it's a good sign that they, I think the more important one is the actual name of the entity when you filed with the state. So if they was able to get through that process and the name was approved and it was, you know, when it was filed for the Secretary of State, then I think that's that's definitely a good sign. And when they try to file for the DBA, it's hard to answer this question, obviously, because we don't know what they're trying to do. Like, are they just trying to file a DBA that where they take, maybe they have ink at the end yeah. of their actual entity name and they're trying to take that off. Yeah, that's a common DBA. But I don't know, maybe they're trying to file something completely different. Like I said, I, we don't know what the name of the entity is or what the DBA is. Should they be concerned about it? I think the most important thing is that they were able to get through with the Secretary of State. So, yeah. I mean, there might be some area of concern. It just kind of depends on what the, the name is, I suppose. Yeah, I think the concern should be focused on the trademark aspect of it in the sense that if someone else is using your name, and let's say it depends what your goals are for that business, obviously, you don't want to be infringing upon someone else's trademark, number one. Number two is that you want to be able to hold your own as far as have rights to your own business name and trademark and be able to assert that against others on a national level. And so that, in my perspective, is a little bit more important than someone who filed a DBA. Because, I mean, if you look at DBAs, they're much more, I mean, it's so easy that the number of names that have been registered as a fictitious business name is much more compared to those that have been registered as a trademark. And the trademark is much more important, same as the actual entity formation of the state as well. And I was actually in the county building. This is, I don't remember how long ago it was now, sometime in the last year. And I had a 30 years ago, <laughs> 30 years ago. I asked someone in the office where they do the DBAs or I was like, actually, you know, we need to change one. I was like, should I just uh, withdraw or cancel the first one? She's like, ah, it doesn't even really matter. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, I just need to change, you know, the address or something. I was like, God, ah, just you don't even need to really do anything. I was like, oh, yeah, fair enough, I guess. <laughs> People get very caught up in the whole DBA thing. I think the most important thing from a legal perspective is that when people are filing a lawsuit, as attorneys, we look up the fictitious business name registry 
because sometimes we don't know if this is an entity or, or DBA, can't find it as an entity. And I've seen a lot of times where people may start out with a DBA and then they file an entity and they forget that this other DBA is out there. And it could be construed that because that DBA is there that you're still operating under the DBA and not the entity and maybe old contracts that are under the old name without the ink or without the LLC. In other words, it could expose you to personal liability, basically defeating the whole purpose of you incorporating in the first place. Just a small tidbit there with DBAs. Yeah. Do you prefer DBAs or uh, fictitious business names? <laughs> as far as the <laughs> good question. Yeah. I just follow whatever the state follows. Texas uses assumed names. And I think a lot of states use assumed names in their legal language. I think fictitious business names and DBA are kind of interchangeable. I think, I want to say at least in San Diego, they use fictitious business name, I thought. Yeah, they do. Okay. But they use both too, because in the forms, I think it says doing business as still, it'll still use that language within the actual form. But I haven't filled one myself in a while, so yeah, maybe wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, before we confuse people too much here, I think we'll cut it off. Let's cut it off. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Yeah. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.